You know, there are some things in life that are just plain old inconvenient. As I'm getting older, I'm realizing this more and more. The last time I spoke with my GI doctor, he said, Mike, here's what you need to do. There's a product out called All Brand Buds. Uh, all, all, all Brand Buds, whatever it's called exactly. I think I've purposely forgotten. He said, for you to have a healthy colon, you need to eat one cup of this every day. I tried doing that for about one week. No possible way. If you've ever done that consistently, can you talk to me and let me know what your secret is? I mean, I don't know. Maybe he sprinkles it on everything, including his salad and his ice cream. I don't know. But I've tried it, and man, that is hard. That is so hard. It is completely inconvenient. So I ha I'll be honest with you now. I, ha I still take my all-brand buds, but I sprinkle them on my granola. I don't put nearly a cup of all. I don't eat nearly that much. But I do sprinkle some, and to be honest with you, for me, it is incredibly inconvenient. It is incredibly sacrificial on my, on my part, but nevertheless, I, I, I do it. And you know, I, I can only imagine one day when I get to heaven, the Lord's going to just smile at me and say, you know what, Mike, during your generation, they actually thought that stuff helped. But, and I'm like, are you serious? I sacrificed so much and it was for nothing? Wow. Oh, my goodness. You know, none of us want to sacrifice for no reason whatsoever. I remember when we had our homeschool co-op at our house. And I really enjoyed having our homeschool co-op at our house. I really did. We had about 40 to 50 people every Tuesday day, like all day. And that was great, except the part when they would say, hey, Pastor Mike, and I would hide away in my study because I'm getting stuff done, right, except for the classes that I would teach. And they would say, hey, Pastor Mike, you know, knock, 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 hey, Pastor Mike, just so you know, the downstairs toilet has overflowed again. And I guess some little kids figure that the best way to take care of business is with an entire roll of toilet paper. Regardless, I would have to go in there, and I'm plunging away and trying to clean up. And, of course, you know, it's not just an issue of mopping. Now you have to disinfect everything. Because it went all over the floor. Totally inconvenient, but I'll have to admit, I did enjoy having all of those people there. None of us wants to go through something and for it to be completely wasted. All of that sacrifice for no reason. Last week, we talked about something called inconvenient prayer. And the truth is, not all of prayer is inconvenient, but we looked at some passages in which it was highly inconvenient. On the one hand, we looked at Saul, and he basically said, you know, this stuff, this sacrificing for the Lord, it's just inconvenient for me. Even when he was prophesying, see, that was inconvenient for him. It interrupted his schedule. He had his agenda, and prophesying for an entire day and night was not on that list. However, David was a man after God's own heart, and for that reason, David penned many psalms that we find in Scripture. Because that was, that was the nature of his heart. And for this reason, he said to Michael, the son of Saul that he had married, for this reason... Concerning Saul and concerning him, he said, for this reason, God did not choose your father, but he chose me. And David was, had just brought, brought the ark into Jerusalem, and he was dancing with all of his might. And he said this, and I will be even more undignified. But that was Saul for you, and that was David. Saul, prayer, 
and doing the things of the Lord totally inconvenient for David. That was the passion of his life. So we looked at inconvenient prayer. I'm going to look at something that's very related today, and it is always inconvenient, always inconvenient that God asks us to do. Now, prayer is sometimes inconvenient. There are times in which God will wake my wife up at like 3 o'clock in the morning. God bless my my wife's soul. My goodness. How does she do that? I don't know. But she'll wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and God will lay a burden on her heart to pray. You know, I guess God does that for some people. But for for her, what an ink for me, totally inconvenient. All right? That's just hard. If If God would have me do that, I would do that. But I, I would do that. Sometimes prayer is very inconvenient. And God has us doing it because it stirs something up, stirs something up in us to press into him. And that's what this life is about. That's why we go through trials that we press into him. That's why God has this process of seeking him that rarely is easy very, time, very much of the time is difficult, and it takes much longer than we anticipate. And it's just hardly ever the way that we want it done. God's timing, God's way. Tonight, I want us to look at this topic of fasting. All right, can I hear a woohoo? Yes, fasting. I, I'm just going to confess to you right now, tomorrow evening, I'm not fasting. Just saying, at the Super Bowl party, I'm not fasting. But this past month, there were times in which I did. There were times in which many of you did, and it was inconvenient. For me, fasting is always inconvenient. But God calls us to it for a good reason. I want us to look at this idea of fasting. That is fasting with the right heart. Because you can fast outwardly. Honestly, you can do almost anything outwardly that appears religious. And, and I mean, God has to hold his nose to bless that sometimes. God many times had to treat Saul that way. His heart was just, it was outwardly religious, but in his heart, it was not where God wanted it to be. And so we're going to look at Isaiah 58 in just a little bit, but that really gets at the heart of fasting. I really want us to look at this. Let's look at it, first of all, in the Old Testament. And the question is, do we only find it in the Old Testament? Nehemiah 9.1 says, on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Now, before I go any further, I want to pray because I realize that this topic is not a popular topic amongst believers. I'm, I'm aware of that. It's not a real popular thing for me to do. I'll be honest with you. It's inconvenient, but I don't like it. But when I study the word of God, I see something in there that I want to share with you tonight. And this truth that we're going to discover, and as we see it played out, both in Old and New Testament, church, it's powerful. So pray with me. Father, I just ask you right now, give us hearts that are tuned in to what your word says. Even in those times of inconvenient praying, inconvenient fasting, pressing into you, Lord, when our flesh just says no. The spirit is willing, God, but the flesh, the body is weak. I just ask you, Lord, as you would continue to buffet our bodies, as we would lay them down in sacrifice to you, that, God, something would emerge that is so beautiful. And as we look into your word tonight, speak to our hearts, spirit of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
And so we see in this passage in Nehemiah 9.1 that the people are fasting. They're doing it on the 24th day of the, the, the month that this is taking place. Not that that's significant, but the fact is that they're fasting. What else are they doing? They're wearing sackcloth and they put dust on their heads. Many times it would be ash. You know why they would wear sackcloth? Have you guys ever worn sackcloth? Have you ever worn like an itchy shirt? See, there are certain shirts I just will not wear because they have big logos on the front and they don't breathe and I just don't like them, you know? Uh, but there's sackcloth, it itches, it's uncomfortable. And they would purposely wear that as this way of sacrificing. Now, you know, when, when we lift up our hands in worship, to a degree, that's a sacrifice. It takes energy, I suppose, but it is a way of us demonstrating sacrifice. Even so, wearing the sackcloth was a demonstration of that. And they would also put dust and ashes on their heads. They did this, in this context of Nehemiah 9, they did it to mourn for their sins and their ancestors' sins, and then they repented. You're going to find, as you go through the Old and New Testaments, that fasting is many times paralleled with mourning. We're going to see that a little bit more later, but here they're, they're, they're doing this to demonstrate this sense of sacrifice, this mourning, this weeping over their sin, and then they're repenting. So we're going to see that concept of repentance and fasting many times in both Old and New Testament. Isaiah 59. I'm just going to read a few verses here. But in Isaiah 59, we read this. It says, your fasting ends, with, ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. What were they doing? Watching the Super Bowl or something? You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? The only a day? It should be a lifestyle. That's his point. Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed or for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Now understand, I'm going to read just a few more verses. His purpose is not to shun or discourage fasting, but it's the heart behind it. Outward religious, look at me, I'm fasting. Many times, <coughs> Pharisees would purposely put on sackcloth and ash on the head and walk about, and inside there would be this, aren't I religious? Or they would pray on street corners, or they would blow, have trumpets blown whenever they would tie. It was all a show. And Jesus regularly rebuked that type of hypocrisy in which the outward did not match the inner heart. And that's what Jesus, excuse me, that's what Isaiah is getting at here. He then goes on, verse 6, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? Are you ready? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer 
with shelter. And then skipping down, he says, then, when you're doing these things, then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. And so this idea of fasting is to come contritely before God in the sense of sacrifice and humility, many times mourning and weeping and repenting over our sins. There's other reasons we're going to get into, but he said, I see the outward, but where is your heart? Let's make sure that we've got this heart right. Don't be like Saul, be like David. Now, because of what Isaiah says here, many in our day say, do you see Isaiah 58? For that reason, we don't have to fast. That's Old Testament, it's law, we don't need to do that today. And I want to challenge that. We're going to see this idea in the book, in the New Testament, but we're going to see that there is still a challenge that Jesus gives to us. So follow me if you would. Jesus actually rebukes the Pharisees for this outward display, as I mentioned. And he says it in this way. When you fast, this would be Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. When you fast, do not look, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth. They have received their reward in full. So they've actually received some sort of reward. And may I suggest that that reward is simply men's praise. Wow. He is so religious. Every Friday I see him walking all around town. I think that's all he does though on Fridays. But he walks all, the, all around town with these ashes on his head and the sackcloth. And he says, you know what? Those, are, those people are hypocrites. That's what Jesus is saying. They've already received their reward in full, and that is the praise of men. But when you fast, put oil on your head. Now, don't get me wrong. Oil would simply be, be a way of grooming your hair. It would actually be to make it look nice. Put oil on your head. Wash your face. So that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting. But only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And so for this reason, I'm going to encourage you as we go through this, as you're taking notes, as you're really saying, God, when and how do I fast? I'm going to encourage you, make sure that you do it in secret. Don't let people know about it. And there are times in which, okay. I'm actually going to share with you a situation in, in which I did, and I don't do that to receive anyone's praise. But th th it was just something that God showed me. Actually, it happened yesterday. But you know what? We don't go around parading you know, that, that, this, that I'm fasting today, all right? And so for that reason, you generally don't see people wearing sackcloth with ashes on their head either. Jesus rebukes them. And then he goes on and Matthew chapter 9, and he says this, Matthew does, Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? So if Jesus' opinion was that fasting is Old Testament, but that, and that fasting is not for the New Testament covenant, what a perfect opportunity Jesus had right here to say, Hey guys, you know what? Now that I've come, 
Fasting is in the past. It's not something you need to do. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn? Now, in another gospel, it's this recording the same incident, Jesus has said, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast? They're basically saying the same thing. Because the idea of fasting here that Jesus is pulling out is this idea of mourning while you're fasting. How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. Church, fasting is not just something of the old covenant. It is something to be very much a part of our present day lives. Then they will fast. Then, in other words, they will mourn. Church, we will mourn. We will plead before the throne of grace, inquiring and pleading for his mercy. There will be times in which we will be repenting, but we're not going to be having this huge display of our fasting. We'll do it secretly. And the Lord, who sees in secret, will reward openly, Scripture says. In Acts 13, chapter 2. Here the early church is gathered together. There's several leaders. We don't know if the church is with them or if it's just these five leaders. But they are worshiping and fasting. Now here's what it says. Acts 13 verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed... They placed their hands on them and sent them off. And so we see here that in the setting of worship and fasting, the Holy Spirit speaks to them, speaks to the church, speaks specifically concerning Paul and Barnabas. And here then, as they are sent out, they go on their very first missionary journey. That was perhaps one of the most significant acts of the early church because now they weren't just saying yeah the gentiles are going to come to christ they're now actually going and they are fishing for those gentiles they're calling they're preaching and challenging them to follow the jesus that has now changed their lives and so for this reason god has them in this moment of worship and fasting we don't know why they were fasting. Maybe, maybe they had a hunch that God was going to do something. Maybe they were thinking about some possibilities of what they were going to do. And then this prophetic word comes out. Set apart from me Paul and Barnabas to the work to which I've called them. And I can only imagine that Paul and Barnabas had discussed this, had thought, you know, what should we do? And now it's clarified. It is confirmed. Yep, Paul and Barnabas, they're leaving. And so they immediately pack their bags. They immediately get set. The church prays over them and they're sent out. We see this in just a, a few chapters later in chapter 14, verse 23. It says, Paul and Barnabas, while they're on their first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church. That is, with regard to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Elders in each of the churches and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord. They were appointing elders 
That's a really significant step for any church. Now understand that they were able to appoint elders this quickly for this reason. They went into the synagogues. People who knew the word, the Old Testament, now begin to realize Jesus is the Messiah. Things click. They're converted. But they have so much truth planted in their hearts. And Paul and Barnabas identify those mature men and lay hands on them, set them in place as elders. But they do so with fasting. They're not mourning for their sin. So here's another situation in which they are humbling themselves before the Lord. And we're not exactly sure. Is it for greater anointing upon them? Is it for wisdom? We're not exactly sure. But this is a significant event. And they realize it. And so they set, it, they set aside a time for fasting. All right? So fasting is very New Testament, very New Covenant. It is for today. So what types of fasting? I don't want to spend too much time on this, but what types of fasting do we find? So I'm not going to go through all of the scriptures about fasting and divide it up, and there's this type and this type. I'm just going to let you know that basically there would be four types of fasting. You'll probably find more somewhere else, but I'm just going to break it down into four basic ones. And number one is the full fast, and that is no food and sometimes no water. Other times, it, and most of the time, it would just be water. So no food, sometimes no water, but generally they did drink water. That would be the full fast. There are times in which they fasted food and water, but there were short occasions. We know of only one instance in Scripture in which the person fasted for 40 days without eating and without drinking water. Now, it is possible someone suggested, well, maybe they drank wine. But can I just let you know that I think the longest someone has ever gone without water is like 10 or 11 days or so. I might be mistaken on that. But many people after four days can die as a result of being dehydrated. For 40 days, we either have to say, okay, maybe he didn't drink water, but he did drink some wine. That would be kind of like juice. Or maybe it was just a miraculous event that was Moses on Mount Sinai while he was receiving the law of God. It says he did not eat and he did not drink water. I am not going to encourage you to do that. Don't assume that God is just going to protect your life. Even Jesus, when he fasted for 40 days, it does not say that he did not drink water. But he did fast for 40 days. So there's the full fast with no food and just water or sometimes no water. But no water was generally short. Number two, there's the liquid fast. The liquid fast would basically be no food and just juices. No food, but just juices. Now, can I say that there are times in which I have to chuckle, and I've done it myself, in which I say, okay, so if it's a liquid fast, I can technically take all of these fruits and vegetables and put it in this blender, and it comes out a liquid, all right, and you throw everything in it but a leg of lamb, right? And then you, you drink it. Okay, well, that's technically a fast, right? I even will throw some protein powder in there, or I have. And I'm just wondering, you know, and, and I even had someone say, hey, Mike, I'm, I'm fasting. I said, you're fasting, but you're eating ice cream. He said, well, technically, it's 
frozen liquid, right? Okay. But here's the bottom line. I, I don't pass judgment on how someone chooses to fast. That's between them and the Lord. It's not like they're going to, God's angry with them or disappointed. I mean, that's not what this is about. This is simply about the heart reflecting in an outward way. I am willing to inconvenience myself. I am willing to buffet my body. I am willing to sacrifice whatever I need to for this reason, whatever I'm praying about. Maybe it is repentance, and maybe it's just concerning a stronghold in their life. Maybe it's for something that's urgent and a prayer need. Maybe it's just like as the disciples did, perhaps as they were praying over, uh, praying over Paul and Barnabas and they were fasting. Maybe that was set as, it could have been a, for a feast we don't, or, or rather a ceremony, but it could well have just simply been they knew that God was going to do something important and they felt they needed to fast, and boom, a prophetic word comes out. So we have the full fast, we have the liquid fast, we have the partial fast, and that would be maybe one meal. Not a full day, but one meal. Sometimes, many times I do that accidentally, but the truth is, <laughs> it, it, one meal. And so that's a partial fast. Number four, it, it's what some people have called the Daniel fast. In Daniel chapter 1 and chapter 10, the word fast or fasting is not used, but the implications, especially in chapter 10, and it's basically the same type of thing that Daniel does, but there's indication in chapter 10 that maybe it is a fast. It, ju it just doesn't say that. So I'm going to just throw this out there to you, but the Bible doesn't clarify it. And in this fast, this Daniel fast, they had no choice food. And when you compare chapter 1 and 10, choice food basically was meat. So there was no meat and no wine, but only vegetables, fruit, and water. And so that was a Daniel fast. Now, you can fast one meal. You can fast a day, several days, a week. You can fast a month. You can fast 40 days. There's plenty of examples of these things in Scripture. But again... I'm just going to encourage you, make sure that as you're fasting, regardless of what type of fast you choose, that it's a reflection of the heart. And I would encourage you, if you've never fasted before, that you ease into it. If you've never fasted before, I'm going to encourage you, don't go out and do a 40-day fast. Don't do that. You know, water only. You, can I do, get your body used to that, okay? Get your body used to it. Now, why fast? I've touched on some of them. It's a demonstration of mourning and repentance, and therefore it's a, this sense of great need for God to step in and for God to act. In this case, mourning and repentance, it would be for God's forgiveness. And not just forgiveness, but a change of heart amongst yourself or the people that we're praying for. When Daniel fasted in Daniel chapter 9, at the end of the 70 years, because he had read Jeremiah, he figured, doing the math, that we're coming really close to the end of the 70 years. It says that he fasted and prayed. Now, in that context, he is mourning for Israel's past sins, but he is also has an eye to the future. And then, of course, God sends Gabriel, an angel, and, and Gabriel gives him a very specific message, a very enigmatic 
prophetic message having to do with 70 weeks. And so there is a response from God, but Daniel's heart is postured for a repentance of the past, but a looking ahead to the future. That there would be this change in Israel. And actually the prophetic word has to do with that. It actually has to do with the cross. The coming of the Messiah. And the very reason for him coming. To bring about a purified people. So God's answer is something in the future. So it's a demonstration of these things. Sometimes we pray. And it's an outward sign of humbling and sacrificing. As if to say I am desperate in, needing, in, in need of you. It is completely inconvenienced. It's a complete inconvenience, but it's purposefully that. I want to read something to you from St. Augustine. It's entitled, How to Fight Temptations Against Fasting. Now, Augustine lived in the late 300s, early 400s. He was the bishop, he was the bishop of Hippo in North Africa. He said this, Do not consider fasting to be a light or unimportant matter. No one fasting according to the customs of the church should think to himself things such as, what prompts you to fast? You're cheating your soul. You're not giving it what pleases it. You are imposing punishment on yourself. You are your own torturer and executioner. Man, I feel what he's saying there, right? You're your own torturer and executioner. Does it please God to have you torment yourself? Then he's cruel since he's pleased by your suffering. Do you hear what he's saying? Answer temptations of this sort with these words. Certainly I punish myself so that God may spare me. I take vengeance on myself. He's speaking a bit poetically here. I take vengeance on myself so that he may come to my aid so that I may be pleasing in his eyes so that I may delight in his graciousness for the victim is tortured so that it may be placed on the altar. My flesh will thus weigh less heavily on my spirit. Okay, do you, do you hear the nature of what he is saying? He uses some pretty harsh, you know, like vengeance. But he's basically saying it's because I'm the victim. I am a sacrifice and in this fasting, I am sacrificing myself. What is that? It's just, it's just a sacrifice to God. All right? And it, it, we do it joyfully. And I'm, I'm preaching right now to myself, church. We do it joyfully with anticipation of what God has in store, of what God is going to do, what God is going to say, how he's going to respond. So that was St. That was Augustine, Bishop of Hippo. Sometimes we pray and fast generally they're together for guidance, for wisdom. And, and I'd say it's, it's generally coupled with praying. You rarely will find any instance of fasting and no mention of prayer. That we will look at one, but the suggestion is that prayer is there. And you'll see why in a moment. I would also say that it encourages and stimulates faith. There's an incident in which Jesus was, had just been transfigured before Peter, James, and John. And he comes down from the mountain. And when he comes down, the other nine disciples are having an argument with the Pharisees. A lot of commotion going on. And Jesus comes in the fray and he says, guys, what's going on here? 
And they say, and, and the man comes up to, a man comes up to Jesus and says, well, they were trying to cast a demon out of my son. And they couldn't do it. And they were in an argument with the Pharisees. And I'm sure that the Pharisees, once that door to argumentation was opened, it just discouraged faith. And faith is so significant in this story. And so Jesus says, well, come, talks to the dad and says, you know, how long, what's the symptoms, etc." And then he says, you unbelieving generation. And the man says, then help my unbelief. And so Jesus calls the boy over. And when he comes, he falls at his feet. And he starts writhing on the ground, foaming at the mouth. General characteristics of total demonic oppression. And Jesus casts the demon out. Gone. Now here's the significant part. Jesus pulls away with his disciples. And they ask him, Jesus, why, is it, why couldn't we cast out this demon? And here's what Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, his response is, Oh, you of little faith. Faith is the issue that the disciples struggled with. And I'm gonna and then I'll, I'll say it again. Their argument with the Pharisees did not help at all. Didn't help at all. But Mark records, and he he, 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 it's not that they are, there are two different answers here, but no doubt Jesus said both of these things. Jesus in Mark 9, 29 says this, this kind of demon does not come out apart from prayer and some manuscripts add and fasting. And I'm just, I'm not going to get into the different manuscripts there. Or ju I'm just going to say, I'm going to present it to you as prayer and fasting. Okay. So is it about Faith, or is it about prayer or prayer and fasting? And the idea is that church, it's both. Because prayer and fasting stimulates faith. It causes faith to rise up. Remember in Luke 18, Jesus told them a parable so that they would pray and never give up. And at the very, concerning the, uh, the widow who was seeking justice against her adversary. And Jesus at the end of that parable says, when the son of man returns, will he find prayer on the earth? No, 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 no. He said, will he find faith on the earth? Prayer stimulates and is an act of faith. And this is in part why there are reasons why God waits. And he is challenging us to pray and don't give up. Keep praying, keep praying, and yes, keep fasting. It's totally inconvenient, always inconvenient. We do so, though, with joy Lord, help me, but we do it with joy, and we realize that God in heaven is pleased with that. We're not earning rewards. We're not, rather, we're not earning his favor. We're just not doing that. God's favor is already there. But we are pressing in, and it is an exercise of sacrifice and faith. So, faith, prayer. Fasting, all of these come together. They work together with good reason. The end being that God in heaven smiles and he looks down and he steps in and he acts in a very powerful way. And I'm just going to take the last 15 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes, and I want to look at two incidences in Scripture. They're actually found in the Old Testament. Don't be afraid of that. 
They fasted in the Old Testament, but remember, we concluded that this type of fasting is also done in the New Covenant. This is what we're invited into. So let's look at this. This one's found in Esther chapter 4. The problem that we are facing, that, that Esther is facing here, is she had, the original queen was deposed, and she was chosen to be queen. So there she is. She's in the court of the king. She's married as a Jew to a king. And he is the king, as far as we know, is the most powerful empire on planet Earth. She's the queen. But Haman, who apparently is an Amalekite with enmity towards Jews, he appeals to the king. Long story short, bad mouths Jews and says, you know what, I think we should just kill him. We should just kill all the Jews. Rid the earth of them. Mordecai finds out about it, tells Esther, and Esther's like, well, what can I do? If I enter before the king into his courtroom unannounced or uninvited, he will probably put me to death. And Mordecai says this, you know what? If you're not willing to do this, then God will raise up help from somewhere else. But know this, you will not be spared because this uh, this ordinance includes you because you're a Jew and you and your family will die. So maybe God has placed you in this position as queen to the king of the most powerful empire on earth for such a time as this. And so he, I want to read to you what she says. The Nestor sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all Esther's instructions. For three days, they were to fast. I can only imagine, though it's not included in here, that they prayed, right? Here they're Jews in a, a foreign land, and they're going to be crying out to God for what? For mercy. Crying out to God for mercy. Read the book of Esther. What a powerful testimony to the sovereign power of God stepping into a situation like this, rescuing his own people. They were supposed to be obliterated. The king's right-hand man had the king's ear, and God led Esther, gave her such wisdom, such faith, but then such wisdom to know how to handle this situation. And the heart of the king was turned. Spoiler alert, Haman dies on the very gallows that he built for Mordecai, and the Jews are rescued. But what happened in the very beginning of the very next chapter is that after three days of fasting, no food, no liquid, no water, she then goes before the king. And she enters into the courtrooms, the, the throne room, where, again, you were never allowed to go unless you were invited. And the king saw her, 
and he extended the golden scepter, which in their custom meant you're free to come. What do you need? And his heart was open to her. She was willing to risk her life. And in that moment, she needed mercy because her life would have been on the line. And so she did this. She, not just herself, but all Jews in Susa fasted. And I am sure they prayed. And God extended mercy. God didn't just extend mercy, church. God did something so amazing and so blessed the Jewish people in Susa and throughout the empire, actually. There's more that could be said. God was merciful because a woman was willing to sacrifice her life. But before she did that and took that step of faith, she prepared her heart and she pleaded for mercy. That's what this was all about. You know, just on Thursday, I was asked to do a job. It took me many hours to do, and, and I'm just going to say it included a bumper and a mirror. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of skip some details because they're probably going to be boring for you. But a mirror, many mirrors these days are two parts. There is the rim, and just inside the rim is where the glass is, and then the body of the mirror. And there was a scratch that went over the rim and the body. Simple, but... If you're not careful, it, you can fill that where they join together. And so apparently I didn't take great enough care. I thought I did, but when I painted it, there was probably about three inches where you could there was paint between there and you could not see that separation. So it made it look painted. And I just thought to myself, if I were the owner of this vehicle, this would not be acceptable. It just would not be acceptable. And, and there's m much more detail to this. This job had to turn out well. It just had to. It, and as a matter of fact, the way it could work is that I could be reprimanded by the general manager, possibly lose my job there that I've had for over 20 years, maybe not. But the truth is there was a lot at stake here. The, the, the service department that I got the job through may say, never again, I don't want you to touch these vehicles. The bumper turned out great. The mirror turned out great, except for that. And it looked painted. And your job as a painter is to make sure that something doesn't look painted. So here's what I did. Friday morning, I'm actually reading this passage. And I am seeing, in my mind's eye, Esther fasting. And she is going to fast for God's mercy for her own life, and for the lives of all of the Jews. So that was the, she's asking for God's mercy. And I just said, you know what, God? That's exactly what I need today. I need your mercy. Because of the nuances of this, he was going to get the bumper done for free. The dealership would pay for it. And I'm just thinking, Lord, may he just overlook how the mirror looked, in my opinion, not acceptable. Maybe he'll accept it because, hey, I got a free bumper job anyway, right? But the truth is, it should have been turned down. He should have just said, he should have said, I don't like this. Is there some way to correct it? And I would have to say, I'm sorry, there's not. I can't. You would have to, yeah, long process. I, and I wouldn't be able to do it. And so I just pray, God, you, somehow blind his eyes. I don't care. Do whatever you need to do. But may he, may he love the job. So I just, I packed my lunch. I just figured, you know, I'm fasting one meal because the guy's going to come in. He's going to pick up the car and I am either going to get a bunch of flack for this 
or he's going to walk away okay with the job. So I'm keeping an eye on the vehicle. I'm doing a car, and I drive by. His car's still there. Noon, lunchtime, I'm really getting hungry. The car's still there. Okay, God. I'm, I want to fast until this is done, and he's, he's okay with it. Two o'clock, still not. Three o'clock, still not done. Is he coming at like the end of the day? I hate fasting when I have to work so hard, just so you know. But I'm trying to keep my attitude in check, and I'm just saying, okay, God, then I fast to the end of the day. And finally, I drive my car by that I just finished up, and his car's gone. Okay. She hasn't come over to me. She hasn't said, Mike, why didn't this turn out? The you know, I just left it up to his opinion. I got a text from him that evening saying, Mike, that job was awesome. It was great, capital G-R-E-A-T. And I just thought, what? Seriously? Thank you, Lord. Now I want to ask you, are you going through a situation in your personal life in which you desperately need God's mercy at this moment? Do you need his mercy for anything? Hebrews 4 says we boldly approach the throne of grace pleading for his mercy. God desires to pour out his mercy on his people. But I'm just going to say there are times, as we have an example here, in which he says, I need you to be desperate. That is what God will regularly ask. I need your desperation in here. You know, Marla wrote a worship song. I think we sang it last week, didn't we? Is I am desperate. I am desperate. That, that is the cry of faith. God, I am desperate. I lean on you. I desperately need you right now in this situation. I need mercy. What do you need mercy for today, church? What do you need mercy for? And write it down. And you pray, you be the one to say, okay, maybe you already fasted for it in January. But if not, maybe God would call you to that and just say, God, I'm setting aside this amount of time. And this is what the type of fast I believe you called me to. No one can decide that for you, by the way. And God, I'm just going to, I'm going to, I am like your sacrifice. I am laying my physical body on this altar. Crucify it. Kill it. That's what fasting feels like anyway. And God, my prayer is this. And lay it before him over and over and over again. Don't be like the hypocrites, like the pagans, where they just mumble, mumble, and you know, say the same prayer over and over and over and over again as if somehow that's going to earn a reward for them. And when they hit a certain number, God says, there you go, jackpot, you get a freebie today. That's not the heart behind any of this. It is God hears my heart. And it's desperate for you right now. The last one I want us to look at is Elijah. I need to be quick with this. Elijah has just had the most phenomenal experience in his entire life. He, is cha he has challenged the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, to a duel. Whose God is greater? I don't encourage you to necessarily do that. He was inspired by God, but... The duel was this, you do your sacrifice, I'll do mine, I'm even going to pour water on mine, and we'll see. You guys pray, and you'll see if your God, Baal, answers you and just consumes your sacrifice with fire. Don't light it, no lighter fluid, no matches, uh-uh, 
and we'll see. And so like all day, they're just chanting, they're cutting themselves and doing all of their pagan occultish type of things. And it's like, no answer from heaven. Elijah then takes his 12 barrels, buckets, jars, whatever of water, dumps it on his sacrifice, dripping, uh, the, the, the wood is soaked, there's a trench all around it, it's filled with water, and then he just, he prays, and God, he, you show them, you show them the, the true God in heaven, and immediately fire from heaven consumes the sacrifice, burns it up, Water gone, licks up the water, it licks it up, interesting, right? Licks up the water from the, the trough that he's uh, around the, the, the altar, and the people are stand back, they're amazed. And they three times, they say, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. And then he eventually has all 450 prophets of Baal put to death. They were a plague, a blight on the face of Israel, leading them astray, leading them into child sacrifice, leading them into all kinds of occultic types of sins. And the King Ahab and Jezebel were just welcoming all of this. And God said, no more had 450 prophets of Baal killed. Elijah is thinking, now the northern and southern kingdom will be united. Now there will be revival. Yes. And the report gets back, Jezebel wants your head on a platter. She is after you. She is going to kill you for what you did. And he, he, he runs. And he, 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 in, his, in his just weariness and frustration, he says to God, he says, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. He tried so hard, living his life, preaching, calling people to repentance. And there's a fire that's beginning to be ignited. And then suddenly it seems as if it's snuffed out. And he says, God, I'm no better than my ancestors. They've tried to proclaim the one true God. And there was no repentance. And I am no better than them. And so he starts this journey. And it takes, it's, he starts this journey to Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, and apparently he is fasting. It says, so he got up and ate and drank. The angel, by the way, that appeared to him, provided this, strengthened by that food. So there's an indication now of fasting. Strengthened by that food, not future food, by that food he traveled, and for 40 days and 40 nights, he did this. He reached Mount Horeb. Now, it's not that it took him 40 days and 40 nights. It's just that he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. When he arrived at Mount Horeb, we don't know in that 40 days. That's the way the Hebrews laid out. And he reaches Horeb, the mountain of God. That's where Moses was. And what we see here, it says he went into a cave and spent the night. What we see here is kind of an imagery of what Moses went through, of what Moses did. Fasting for 40 days. He goes to Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, and he hides in a cave. You see, it was there in that cave, in the cleft of that rock, that God did something very unusual and powerful. He walked in front of Moses, but Moses only saw his back, and that was the glory of God unveiled. He couldn't show him his face. And metaphorically, what all of that is, we don't know, but he could not bear to see the full unveiled glory of God. He would have died, but he had an experience greater than, no, greater than any has seen, 
and he, he witnessed the glory of God. All of the goodness and love and everything and compassion in God revealed to him. And Elijah is looking for this. And so God asks him, Elijah, why are you here? And Elijah tells him basically a sob story. I don't mean to be too harsh on Elijah. I, honestly, if I were in Elijah's shoes, it probably would have been worse. I probably would have felt more defeated. Elijah's focus right now is too much on himself. Yes, he's wanting to see revival. But it has made him feel like a total failure. Yep, been there, right? Any of you been there? You tried so hard and it just totally failed? Yep, been there. Nobody's feeling, at least to a degree. Yep. And God says, Moses, excuse me, Elijah. Hmm. Yeah, I, I can only, that's why you're here, okay? I, I listened to, to all of this. You need to know something. And so God has a tornado pass in front of him. He has an earthquake happen and fire. Fire was the very thing that he did just 40 days prior on Mount Carmel. Not today. God is not in any of these. Not in the tornado. He's not in the earthquake. Not in the fire. And then he hears a still, small voice. And he has to cover his face, just like God covered Moses, covers his face. He's, a, he's wondering, am I going to see a full revelation of God's glory? For this reason, church, he went to Mount Horeb. He's fasting. He's in desperate need of a personal revival. And he's going to plead for God's mercy for a national revival. This is on Elijah's heart. And so he fasted for 40 days. It was hard. It was super inconvenient. He traveled for days upon days. Doesn't say that he had a donkey or a horse or anything. I'm sure he traveled on foot however many days, several days to get there. However long he was there, I don't know. But for 40 days he fasted and, and he is crying out. And he is seeking a personal revival because he feels like an utter failure. And he needs God to do something in his heart. He's desperate. And so he is, he, he is wanting to see this blight of Baalism gone from the face of Israel. And so God speaks to him in that still small voice. Not in the fire this time. Not in some awe-inspiring fashion. But in a very quiet, almost secretive way. God reveals what he's going to do. And you can read about that. And God's heart was to get rid of Baalism. But not according to Elijah's timetable. Not according to Elijah's plan. As a matter of fact, Elijah was only going to pass the baton. That's all he was going to do. He was going to be a baton passer. He was not going to be there when it all happened. It was going to happen in the next generation. Church, we are living in a day, I believe, in which God's people need to be desperate about this very thing for a personal revival and for a national, even worldwide revival. And we need to be desperate about this. Fasting needs to be something that we welcome as hard and inconvenient as it is. We embrace it because God's people 
desperately need God to act in their hearts, in the hearts of their family, in the hearts of the people in this world, because God's heart is to fill this world with the knowledge of his glory, even as the waters cover the seas. That is God's heart. God's heart is that all nations stream into his kingdom. God's heart is that we make all nations disciples. That's really what the great commandment says. Make all nations disciples. Jesus has a big picture of what his kingdom is going to do. And it's going to become the largest, in the parable he gave, the largest plant in the garden. By far. That needs to be our heart. We need to be willing to welcome fasting, even as so many people, even Jesus himself did, because there is so much at stake, church. So much at stake. There's so much in your life that's at stake. There's so much in the lives of the people around us at stake. And so we welcome it. And that fasting will stir up faith and will stir up boldness and will do something in us as we pray and I believe that the heart of God is going to be moved. And he is going to say, yes. My incident that took place on Friday was so small. But God did it to teach me something. Mike, can you step out? Can you be willing to do this? And just cry out for my mercy and see what a merciful father I have. Church, can you stand with me? Father, whatever right now is burdening our heart, I just ask that it would not stop there. You're wanting to do something in us personally as a people, as a church, as, as your church worldwide, God, but it must begin here. Father, I just, ask us, I just ask, make us a people who are so dependent upon you, so longing for you, so desperate for you. Make Mike Curtis that type of person. Father, may I not look down on sacrificing efforts when it comes to fasting. But Lord, that is our lives on the altar. And we come before your throne boldly. And whatever is on our hearts, Lord God, that we're even right now, many of us lifting up to you, God, please. Rescue my daughter. Jesus, please, this neighbor I poured so much time into and call him out of darkness. God, this stronghold in my life, break it. I just ask you, Father, that in your mercy, you would step into our present situations and manifest your glory. Do something amazing, God, as we yield to you. Thank you, Father. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray.